You're listening to From the Sea Up, a podcast from the Island Institute. I'm Galen Koch. In this season of From the Sea Up, we're focusing on Maine's working waterfronts, bringing you episodes from unique home ports up and down the coast. Maine's working waterfront is historic and iconic, ingrained in the fabric of many of the state's rural and island communities. Its lobster boats and the long-gone sardine industry, diesel mechanics and boatyards filled to the brim with yachts, its buying stations and lobster co-ops, seaweed, oyster and mussel farms, clamors and worm harvesters. For many, these jobs are institutions, intrinsic to the character of the main coast. A thriving and accessible working waterfront is crucial to sustaining Maine's fishing and marine industries. But for Maine's fishermen, boat builders, harvesters, and sea farmers, safe, reliable, and open access to the water is not a given. This season, we invite you to the docks, piers, boatyards, sea farms, and fish houses from down east to southern Maine, and ask you to consider what is the future of the working waterfront? And what role do we have in shaping it? If you've ever looked at a map of the coast of Maine, you've probably noticed that there's a lot of coastline. Maine has 3,478 miles of coastline, to be exact, and more than 5,000 miles if you count the islands. I count the islands. And in the far northeastern corner of the state, in the area Mainers refer to as Down East, there is a small little waterfront that is jam-packed with commercial and recreational activity. This is the city of Eastport, located on a 3.7-square-mile island and connected to the mainland by a causeway and road that passes through the Pleasant Point Passamaquoddy Reservation, Zabayak. Eastport's waterfront has changed a lot in the last century. In 1898, the population peaked at just over 5,300 people. Now that population is just 1,300. I wanted to know more about Eastport's history, why this small city has experienced such a dramatic shift in population size. Why did so many people leave? What was here before? And what lies ahead for this working waterfront? Eastport is one of the most unique ports along Maine's coast. I'll get to that. And in this episode, we'll learn how this town, once full of empty buildings, has transitioned and adapted to an increasingly uncertain future. To find out more about Eastport, I met with Hugh French. If anyone knows about Eastport's history, it's Hugh. In the late 1970s and 1980s, he interviewed dozens of Eastporters about life and work here at the turn of the century. Uh, this is Hugh French, and today is May 1st, 1980, and I'm going to be interviewing Helen Huntley of Clark Street in Eastport. Now Hugh French is the director of the Tides Institute, a cultural and arts institution he co-founded in 2002. The Tides Institute boasts a campus of eight historic buildings in Eastport. So we've redone this. We had to put a steel beam in, in here, otherwise it was going to collapse. The organization has restored these 19th century buildings to house artists and residents, exhibitions, businesses, and community gathering spaces. 
And we're still thinking about trying to do some sort of eatery, but um, we've got to put an elevator in, we've got to put sprinkler systems in. Hugh is taking me and Olivia Jolly, this podcast assistant producer, and Nicole Wolf, our photographer, for a tour of the waterfront today. So if we're on Dana Street This is here, Green Street. This is Green Street. Yes. This is Dana Street. Yes. Okay. What's down, can you orient me just quickly? Is this the south would we go that way to get to the south yes, end yes okay yes that way to the north end yes <laughs> very good <laughs> thank you <laughs> i've seen a compass a couple of times <laughs> like eastport a lot of towns on the main coast experience significant population declines in the 20th century Entire industries have come and gone and the infrastructure on our working waterfronts reflects those changes It's a history that feels far away when you're looking at the rundown buildings or wharves dotting the coastline. But for many people living and working on the water, that history is not so distant. These bygone industries formed the culture and identity of multiple generations of coastal Mainers. Hugh French's interviews from the late 70s and early 80s capture the stories of the hundred years when sardines were king in Eastport. The industry employed fishermen, fish smokers, packers and canners, usually women and children, factory managers, and factory workers. You would have, you said you, so you would have worked in, uh, you said you began at 10 years old cutting fish, and then at 14 or so you went up? Packing the fish. Packing fish. Yeah. I packed fish with I was 74 when I got there. 74? Yeah. See, you couldn't uh, put up too many fish, you know, because the slow work, it wasn't like it is now. Hmm. It took a long time to, to well, pack 10 hogs as a fish. But hmm. in late years, it wasn't anything to do with. Oh, we had it time. I guess we did have it out. That was Alice Bain talking with Hugh French, recounting her 64 years working in the sardine industry. She started when she was just 10 years old and worked in the factory until she was 74. By 1900, there were 75 sardine canneries in Maine, 18 of those in Eastport alone. Throughout the 20th century, sardine factories closed, opened, and changed hands until the last cannery in the state of Maine, in Prospect Harbor, shut its doors in 2010. The decline of the sardine industry, along with other fisheries like cod and mackerel, meant that many waterfront jobs just disappeared. By the early 1980s, when Eastport's last cannery closed, the population had already shrunk from 5,300 in 1898 to just 1,982. Some of the ghosts of Eastport's sardine industry can still be seen on its waterfront, like the enormous abandoned American can plant. What are we looking out over? That's an old American can plant. Okay. Um, That was built in 1908, and that's where they made the cans for the sardine factories. All the factories are gone. The last sardine factory closed in 1982, so that's 40 years ago. And it's hard to imagine that there was ever a sardine industry, except for a building like this. I think there's one other later factory building. But just 40 to 50 years ago, there were huge factories and smokehouses all along Water Street, 
with wharves for sardine carriers to tie up and unload, canneries and labeling factories, and fish traps called weirs in coves and inlets. Eastport even had two pearl essence plants, where sardine scales were turned into glitter for cosmetic products. There was a whole sort of block beyond the downtown, which would be the wharves. And so you could, you could go between wharves and not even touch Water Street. And that's, that's where so much of the commer- commerce happened. Now, as we walk along Eastport's commercial district, we see very few wharves that jut into the sea. That block, as Hugh calls it, has disappeared. The last of the wharves, Wadsworth Wharf, blew away in the famous Groundhog Day gale of 1976. And the decisions of this little city over the past 40 years have shaped a new waterfront. Walking along Water Street, it's astonishing to see the multiple uses that share the densely populated half mile. There are art galleries, a brewery, and several year-round restaurants that, even on a day in mid-May, are bustling with patrons. But there's been a lot of, I mean, not like Portland or anything, but there's been a lot of investment put into this waterfront downtown in the last, well, 40 years. I mean, starting with the seawall and walkway and... I've visited a lot of coastal Maine towns in my lifetime because, well, I'm a Mainer and because I write stories about Maine's coast. Eastport's waterfront is particularly, and for me surprisingly, well-maintained. It's tidy and efficient. And though it may be a surprise, it is not an accident. As early as 1979, the Eastport Planning Board developed a waterfront master plan that outlined in great detail the multiple needs for updating and transitioning Water Street's half-mile footprint in the wake of the Groundhog Day gale. On the shore side of Eastport's waterfront buildings is a walking path that winds along the waters of Passamaquoddy Bay. There is a seawall and city parks, a granite amphitheater, a commercial fish pier, and a breakwater that provides safe harbor for over 50 commercial fishing vessels and a berth for small cruise ships. All of these features were possible through public and private investments and local and state grants. That breakwater alone cost $14.95 million to build. Um, Coast Guard building's new. That's a two, two and a half million dollar project. The port put a new building in. They put a million dollars into the granite post office a couple years ago to restore that. Um, You know, several of these buildings have had, you know, anywhere from quarter of a million to over a million put into them. And a lot of these buildings have, you know, changed hands over that period of time too. So there aren't, there are not very many older, sort of really old established buildings, uh, businesses here now. We'll be visiting two of those older businesses to learn what the last 40 years of planning and investment have meant for Eastport. We'll hear from Dean Pike at Moose Island Marine about changing industries here and the challenges for the future. And we'll visit with Chris Gardner, the executive director of the Eastport Port Authority, to learn how the smallest city in Maine continues to pivot and adapt in an unpredictable global economy. At the north end of Eastport's downtown waterfront, behind the road to the breakwater, is a marine store and mechanics shop. You are in Moose Island Marine's uh, mechanic shop. And this is... And, you, and your name is? Dean Pike. So this is your shop, Dean? Yeah, I built it. I, 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 I built all these buildings. 
Moose Island Marine and stores like it are part of the working waterfront that's sometimes overlooked. The parts store, the boat mechanic, the shipyard. All of these are necessary to keep boats in the water. Here in this shop, all we do here is uh, install boats, uh, install engines on boats or smaller boats. You run them in the tank, the owner leaves the, you know, the owner comes, picks them up and, 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 and away you go. Dean Pike has been in Eastport for a long time. He started Moose Island Marine in 1980 after attending Eastport's boat school, where he taught until the school shut down in 2012. When I started here in 1980, uh, people were still handlining. Handlining was still big. There ain't one left. Uh, As a matter of fact, lobster fishing wasn't that great in Eastport back then. Uh, It was more scalloping, hand lining, then aquaculture came in. A lot of people that that were traditional fishermen uh, had cage sites and uh, uh, that's the way aquaculture started around here was small uh, guys that were on the water anyway, they had cage sites. Right now there's only one real large uh, company do it, Cook, Cook Aquaculture, who they do a great job, thank God they're here. A Canadian company, Cook Aquaculture came to Maine in 2004 and is now the sole operator of the salmon pens in Passamaquoddy Bay and Cobscook Bay. Most of these pens are not visible from the downtown waterfront in Eastport. But Cook has been an important part of the economy for almost 20 years, offering steady employment opportunities on the water. This is especially important in the last 18 months when, because of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, to name just a few global shifts, Eastport has had to let go of most of the men and women who work in the port. Shipping right now from the port is not doing great right now. Uh, We're in a real slump that way. So, uh, you know, that was a fairly good employer. But now, you know, really it's a skeleton crew just to kind of, you know, hold our place in the world market. Eastport's deep, natural harbor of 65 feet is something that sets it apart from other working waterfront towns in Maine. We'll hear more about Eastport's shipping history from Chris Gardner and how Eastport is holding its place, as Dean says, in the world market. The greatest blow to the port's shipping was that Eastport's major export was wood pulp that shipped internationally. But the pandemic changed global and domestic markets. Remember that toilet paper shortage? Suddenly, there was a need domestically for paper products like toilet paper and paper towels, and there was less demand for ships loaded with wood pulp heading to Europe from this far eastern port. So then you don't need as many ships coming and going, right? So it's a market change, a market change. But, you know, the the port has shipped out things. Well, the port's imported windmill blades. It's exported everything from granite to logs, to cows. The other day we had a cruise ship. But Eastport isn't a touristy town. It, you know, I'm going to be uh, pushing up daisies before that happens. You know, there, there, there's, it's going to be a long time before Eastport really is a, compares to Bar Harbor. No, it ain't going to be like that. But it'll, it'll, it'll take smaller cruise ships that have maybe one, two, 100 people on them. 
Esport has been able to accommodate a variety of different industries in the last few decades, partially because of the planning that went on in the downtown waterfront. And even though the city is seeing that slump in shipping, they've still positioned themselves to respond to changing industries and an ever-changing global market. To hear more about Eastport's cargo ports, we say goodbye to Dean at Moose Island Marine and head down the small hill to the Eastport Port Authority offices, where Executive Director Chris Gardner's office overlooks the breakwater. Eastport's Port Authority was founded in 1977. And like all of Eastport's waterfront planning, it was not an accident. During the 1970s, Eastport was at a crossroads. The town was embroiled in a heated debate about its future and identity. Here's Chris Gardner. The reason we exist is in um, the mid-70s, Pittston Oil Company wanted to come to Eastport, Maine and set up a huge oil refinery here. In 1968, the Pittston Company, a coal corporation, began plans to build an oil refinery operation that would essentially have taken up one-third of Eastport and the city's airport. And the reason why it was such a discussion is that Eastport during the late 60s and early 70s was on a series of, I mean, a, a pathway of massive decline. You know, it was built around the sardine industry and ground fishing and all those things, and that stuff had started to really dry up. And, you know, Tim Sample famously infamously, I should say, once quoted that, you know, he was headed to Esport to the Vacant Building Festival, right? That's, you know, we laugh and we chuckle, but the reality was there was some truth to that. And, and the community was dying and trying to reinvent itself. And some people saw Pittston as a chance to, to do that. And a lot of it's the attraction was our depth of water. And it split the community in half. You know, there was that quintessential down east, angry town hall meetings. You know, you've, you've seen every Stephen King movie that's had one in it, right? Those town hall meetings are immortalized in the Salt Institute Journal of New England Culture in an article by Pamela Wood that describes the heated debates among Eastporters at the time. In 1968, city council initially approved the sale of the airport to Pittston Oil. But by the late 1970s, the corporation had ruffled feathers when they said that they'd bulldoze the airport. Suddenly, the town was up in arms. No one would push Eastport around. For years, the Pittston question split Eastport City Council and residents. But ultimately, the town decided that the sale of the airport to Pittston should go up for a community vote. In December 1981, 460 residents voted against the sale, with 382 voting for it. Just 78 votes and some court rulings later, and Pittston was out. When a city makes a decision like the one Eastport made with Pittston Oil Refinery, it changes the trajectory of the community. It was a moment when the town pivoted. A huge corporation was offering Eastport a way forward, but the city decided that its future should be in their control. And that future was the port. You know, this community built its, uh, you know, literally built its foundation around the, the bounties of the water. So if we've lost that, and we can't reinvent ourselves by that, we're an island of 3.7 square miles. We need to go to the water to find our future again. So what they did is they said, uh, we'll set up the Port Authority. And they said they wanted a specialized board of individuals that their sole responsibility, elected by the community, was to redevelop the waterfront. and. You know, it's not City Hall Port Authority, 
That's the uniqueness of us. It's City Hall Port Authority. Co-equal. Co-equal branches, if you will. Eastport established its Port Authority in 1977, as rumblings about the Pittston deal were causing anxiety within City Council and among Eastport residents. The first cargo ship arrived in Eastport in 1981, when the cargo port was still downtown, on the L-shaped breakwater. By the time Eastport's 1991 Comprehensive Harbor and Waterfront Plan was written, the tiny strip that is Water Street was seeing 60 trucks of logs per ship carted through downtown. To quote that document, nearly every available parking lot in the city is used for log storage. As a result, the Comprehensive Harbor Plan proposed that the city move shipping operations to what locals call the backside of the island. The Estes Head Pier now, the backside of the island as we call it, um, they built that because the community, although falling in love with the port, and it's been a huge part of what and who we are, it was also right in the downtown area, and people thought too many trucks, too much activity, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. Call it an embarrassment of riches. I don't know. It's, God love it, the New England curmudgeon, right? Whether it's glass, glass half full or half empty. Not, not here. We, oh, we'd kick if we were in swimming, right? So they found something to complain about and decided that, well, the port needs to be somewhere else. We want to keep it, but it's got to be somewhere else. So that's why they decided to build on the backside of the island. Transitioning shipping to the backside of the island, the side with tons of space, allowed Esports downtown waterfront to remain viable for commercial fishing, while expanding the shipping opportunities for the town. A win-win, as far as I'm concerned. So that pier opened up in 1997, and, that was on, and that's been ongoing ever since. Chris takes us to Estes Head Cargo Port. And it is pretty remarkable to see. There's a 635-foot pier, two deep-water berths. The beautiful thing about the 97 pier is it made us the deepest natural seaport in the continental United States of America. We have 65 feet of water at our lowest running tides. And the only port in U.S. territories that's deeper than us is Valdez, Alaska. So as a result, you know, that makes us very unique. On top of that, we're also the nor- most northern, most eastern port in the United States. There's 133,000 square feet of warehouse storage, about 10 acres of flat storage, and a bulk loading system, basically a conveyor belt. The 10 acres of flat storage is just by itself awe-inspiring. You can fit a whole lot of wood chips in that amount of space. This was our load of wood chips that was supposed to go out in September! Oh gosh. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Can you Photoshop them? Yeah. Does um? Can you still use them? Yes. Okay. That's they 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 have a shelf life of about another year. Okay. But but still. Esports shipping is at a standstill. In the spring of 2022, when we're at Estes Head, there are piles of wood chips with nowhere to go. Chris sees the port as the link between land and sea, between Maine's forestry resources and ocean resources. The Port Authority has invested a lot of time and money in the systems at Estes Head, hoping that a market for wood chips, green energy for Europe, would be in high demand. But the pandemic and unforeseen global conflict has meant that, for now, esports future remains uncertain. So yes, as things change, we have got to be prepped and ready. Being prepped and ready means constant reinvention. In September 2022, the first cargo ship returned to Eastport. And the city invested in a crane 
to load containers onto barges headed for domestic locations. For Chris, the key to maintaining esports position in a global market is resiliency and creativity, and remembering what makes the city so unique. And I'm hoping that the good people at the great state of Maine and the legislature and the governor's office and all those who make the policies are recognizing that water is our future. It very much can be. We have something that Iowa doesn't. The ocean. As of January, Chris Gardner will be stepping down as the executive director of Eastport's Port Authority. He leaves behind a port that is ready for the next chapter, even if they are struggling through the current one. Back in Chris Gardner's office in downtown Eastport, we get a full view of the breakwater. A lobster boat pulls into a slip, and fishermen use a small crane to load bait buckets and lobster traps onto the stern. There's a hot dog stand and scallop draggers tied in the lee of the breakwater. We are blessed. We're blessed beyond blessed in the sense that that structure you see out there, there isn't another one like it in the state of Maine. There just isn't for the fishing community. By that you mean the breakwater? The breakwater. The breakwater is just a, you know, we had it rebuilt and, you know, it houses you know, 50 fishing boats down there. And each one of those, make no mistake, is a small business in Maine, right? Every single one of those guys down there and gals. Innovation and investment from the city and Port Authority, as well as grants and individual funding, supports the working waterfront infrastructure for wild fisheries and aquaculture here. And in Eastport, these industries, industrial cargo and commercial fishing, have found ways to coexist not just with each other, but with small cruise ships, tourism, an active arts community, and recreational boaters. So we're very unique here in Eastport because we are where everything melds, right? I think we are a micro, we are a study. We're a microcosm and a study on working waterfront of how, you know, multiple, multiple users can coexist. There is such this, you know, polarized choice, it seems, that's being pushed on the coast. Are we, are we tourism or are we, quote unquote, working waterfront in a more, you know, commercial fishing or are we industrial or literally a 3.7 square mile island I just talked to you about. We have a fishing community, we have a tourism community land-based, we have a tourism community based upon transient boaters that come in, we have a tourism industry based upon the fact that we have cruise ships come in here. And we also have an industrial base on the water in the cargo port. We also have, and it, it needs to be mentioned when we talk about fishing, we have, the, we have a very strong aquaculture presence here in Maine. So I don't. I think we've. I don't know if there's a, a constituency that we've left out when it comes to working waterfront. Literally, and all of them, not only coexist but thrive, cooperate, lean on each other. As Eastport enters the next chapter, there is strength in this small city's ability to pivot, to respond to changes in weather, markets, fisheries and industries with, in the words of Chris Gardner, resiliency and creativity. This city's history and planning provide lessons for other main towns. We'll be visiting five other waterfronts this season, Gouldsboro, Southwest Harbor, Deer Island Stonington, Booth Bay Harbor, and Cape Elizabeth. Stay tuned for these stories of resilience, creativity, and change along Maine's coast. Thank you for listening to From the Sea Up. 
This episode was written and produced by me, Galen Koch, and assistant producer Olivia Jolly for the Island Institute. Nicole Wolf takes the beautiful photographs that accompany this episode. From the CUP's senior editors are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josie Holtzman. Additional audio editing on this episode by Liz Joyce and Claudia Newell. Special thanks to Camden Hunt, Hugh French, Dean Pike, Chris Bartlett, and Chris Gardner for their help and participation. And thanks to the SALT Institute and Pamela Wood, Hugh French, and Lynn Kippix Jr., who together researched and wrote the 1983 journal publication, Esport for Pride. Most of the music in this episode is by Q Shop. You can hear more of their tunes at www.cue-shop.com. From the Sea Up is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands through a partnership between Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. To hear past episodes and for more information, visit www.islandinstitute.org podcast.